This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Um, so good evening um, and a warm welcome to the Playfair Library. Um, I'm Tim O'Shea, uh, Principal of the University of Edinburgh, and it gives me uh, tremendous pleasure to introduce uh, my immediate predecessor, uh, Stuart Sutherland, to give his Gifford Lecture, David Hume and Civil Society. And this lecture is part of the tercentenary celebrations of the birth of David Hume, and these celebrations have been going very well. Um, Stuart... Uh, oh, two bits of housekeeping I've been asked to give you. Um, the Right Reverend Brian Smith, the former Bishop of Edinburgh, uh, will be facilitating one of his regular discussions that, we, that are so nicely associated uh, with the Gifford Lectures. So the discussion about this lecture will be in the University Chaplaincy, Bristow Square, tomorrow at 5.30. Uh, no need to book, and you're, you're all very welcome. And just to let you know, the lecture this evening is being recorded, so that may affect how you decide to conduct yourself. Uh, but also, if you go vague or you want to tell somebody else about it, um, the lecture will be available online on the University Gifford website uh, within the next week. Uh, Lord Sutherland combines a lifelong commitment to intellectual life with great service, both inside and outside the world of education. He graduated from the University of Adam of Aberdeen with a first-class MA in philosophy, uh, received a Master of Arts in Philosophy of Religion from Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, held academic posts at Bangor and Stirling, and then became Professor of History and the Philosophy of Religion at King's College, London, and was subsequently appointed uh, Vice-Principal and then Principal there. He went on in 1990 to become Vice-Chancellor of the University of London and was appointed Chief Inspector of Schools in England two years later. Uh, in this, that same year, he was elected to the British Academy, and in 1995, he became a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and had a very successful term as President of the Royal Society of Edinburgh from 2002 to 2005. Um, as I mentioned, he was my immediate predecessor here uh, from 1994 to 2002. Uh, after Edinburgh, he returned to London doing, doing lots of important work, uh, and he also had held the role of Provost of Gresham uh, College. Uh, and he received his life peerage in 2001. Stuart is one of the UK's most distinguished philosophers of religion, and his publica publications include Atheism and the Rejection of God, The Philosophical Frontiers of Christian Theology, God, Jesus and Belief, and Faith and Ambiguity. He's also co-author of the book The World's Religions and Religion, Reason and the Self. Uh, in addition to his intellectual activity, um, he has uh, broader interests including education policy, care of the elderly and research policy. And his recreations include uh, collecting tassie med medallions, theatre and jazz. So now I have great pleasure uh, in asking Stuart to address us. Please. Thank you very much, Tim. As the saying goes, behind every man who gets an introduction like that stands an unbelieving mother-in-law. Um, it's a great delight to be back here. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's, it's a great honor and a great stimulus 
To my delight, I spent part of the summer reading, analyzing, dissecting, and it's been great fun to do it more seriously than I've been able to do it for some time. Mind you, coming back to this magnificent room, which is a magnificent room, uh, it does have the odd memory, some of them delightful, one or two. I remember standing up to um, address, deliver myself on some topic or other, and the chap over there, yeah, just where you are, sir, chap over there, before I even started, leapt to his feet and shouted, all principles are charlatans and liars. Now, your one-line perfect put-down is never there when you want it. And I was struggling, struggling very hard to uh, decide what to say. Then someone over there, another bloke, stood up and said, ha, that is an insult and a falsehood. And I looked over there to my saviour and was so delighted. And I said, sir, I didn't know you were a principal. And he said, I'm not. I'm a charlatan and liar. <laughs> um, now, David Hume and civil society. I, I feel I ought to start with just a little bit about the place of David Hume and the University of Edinburgh. So much has been well written uh, that you can now refer you to plenty uh, good biographical, biographical work. But Hume and this university had, at best, at times, a strained relationship. We ought to recall that. It is a message. It is a message. Folks like me who become principals apart from anything else. But he slipped in at the age of 11 and left university three or four years later. He didn't uh, graduate, but I think that wasn't because he failed, fortunately. Uh, rather that people didn't and they didn't feel the need to in those days. But he, he slipped out of the university, uh, and you think, well, we'll look back at the memoirs of all these insightful professors to see if they had spotted the genius in their midst. Not a mention. It doesn't appear in any committee minutes, no memoirs, not a, not a stitch. However, one essay apparently uh, remains, which uh, is, is still here, uh, and there is some uh, suspicion or hope it might have been a prize essay, which is why it has been retained. But by and large, there was no great recognition of this genius in their midst. And those of us who are university teachers, and I see a few of you around, just keep that in mind. But I think as in any worthwhile university, his mind was stretched. Uh, he doesn't say so. And he doesn't... He doesn't exult about his time at university, but I think something must have started the mind moving. I don't think he got it down at Chernside in Berwick amongst the farmers, nice people, but I'm not sure they would have provided the stimulus that produced what I would just once call what I believe is the greatest philosophical work in the English language, Treatise of Human Nature. But there were libraries here, and he managed to access books elsewhere in the city. So the process began. And Edinburgh was beginning then, this is 1711, three, you know, 1722 when he went, uh, he wa Edinburgh was in the process of the ferment. Often it's suggested that this was simply a matter of uh, uh, some unannounced great revolution in thought. I don't believe it was, and I'm quite happy to argue that out with anyone. Uh, I don't think they happen that way. So Edinburgh, I believe, was already in the process 
of refining and changing and developing basically the empirical tradition of British philosophy that had been well set out by John Locke. But Hume was also tremendously impressed by the success of Isaac Newton, who had created a science of uh, nature and the world in which we live, which seemed to explain everything. We're told these days it doesn't, but uh, it was a huge and magnificent uh, uh, scheme of thought. Hume's hope was to create a science of man, as he called it, to complement Newton's science of nature. This, however, as a university, was in some ways a, a crucible. Of course, when he left, he went back to his parent. Well, his mother was farming still. His father had died down near Chernside, near where we live in Berwickshire. And there he uh, um, managed to prove to his family that he was no good at farming. If he was sent out to look after the sheep, he lost them, that sort of thing. I think it was probably a clever move on his part. But he... Uh, he was destined as a second son perhaps to go into law uh, and he found that dreadfully dull uh, as he said it just didn't move his mind or his spirit but this produced a significant angst and he nearly had a breakdown and he might have had for, for all we know about the details and this was driven I think intellectually by his insistence to himself that he would probe the philosophical assumptions and indeed the political and moral assumptions of our age in a way that they had never been probed before. And he did, but he almost had a breakdown. Anyway, he, he made his way to uh, a small town southwest of Paris and found there that he could live on his annual income, which was £50 a year. I presume it wasn't pound Scots, but uh, it was £50 a year. He had to live within that. Paris was too expensive, and he couldn't do it uh, here or in London. He moved there, and he found, ironically, in a Jesuit college, congenial argument, but also a library, but crucially peace and quiet to devote to uh, his intellectual efforts. When he did return to Edinburgh, he came not, as Oscar Wilde did, uh, with only his genius to declare, he came with the book I've already mentioned, Treatise of Human Nature, which is a huge and magnificent achievement and set the pattern for so many others who followed and still does today. That's what he brought back. Now, you might have thought, bright young local lad, lad of perts, as they say, made his mark, produced this magnificent book, academic position in the university. Oh, not for a minute. The, um, I think the, the Anka Good and the Toon Councillors, because they controlled uh, a ward of chairs in those days, any councillors present may wish to note taking over universities is a fraught business for your long-term reputation. They would not give him the chair, and they gave it to uh, somebody whom I can only think of as one of Jack Tamson's, Jock Tamson's less distinguished bairns. Hume didn't get that chair, a chair for which not only was he fitted, uh, what a glory that would have been to be able to announce that principle that we had as one of our early professors in philosophy, David Hume. But in case you come from the West Coast and are feeling smug, 
don't. The same happened in Glasgow. And he was turned down for the chair there for a rather better candidate, but that's a different story. But it was a rejection of his genius, and I want to explore partly why and whether it was intellectually fair. Briefly again on his, uh, his rise, the next great intellectual arena that he inhabited was Paris. He went there as, as a, as a councillor attached to one of the embassy officials. And uh, he was uh, someone who, good clerical skills, good doubtless speech-writing skills. I hate to think that he was what we now call a political advisor. I think he was a bit more of a civil servant. But he took Paris by storm, both in this and the subsequent visit. visit. They spoke of Hume, rejected in this country academically. They spoke of him as Le Bon David, and they saw him as genius, and they recognized that. And remember, this was the time of the great philosophes of Paris and the great salons to which he was invited and in which he sat and swapped ideas. Come back to one of those in a moment. Again, the reputation growing outside rather than here. Immanuel Kant, uh, who I think was probably the greatest of the European philosophers of that time, comments that Hume wakened him from his dogmatic slumbers. Kant is the hope of all aging philosophers. He wrote his greatest work fairly late in life, having written a number of books that by and large were competent, but the great works, the critiques, came late in life, and it was Hume who awakened him from his dogmatic slumbers. And just to keep uh, touch with the total survey of Scottish cities, lest any Aberdonians, of whom I have won, are feeling, ah, oh, well, Glasgow and Edinburgh turned them down, they fostered a chap called Beatty, James Beatty. Kant refers to him, I think, quite fairly as that silly, bigoted fellow Beatty. And that's his epitaph in history in the, fore in the foreword to one of Kant's great works. So there was Hume, great figure outside Scotland, a notorious figure inside, having a very mixed relationship with his own university. However, we did manage to redeem ourselves a bit the, by the beginning of the 20th century, a century and a quarter after Hume died. Norman Kemp Smith, who was probably the most significant philosopher to hold a chair of philosophy in the 20th century here, uh, in two seminal articles in 1905, really rescued Hume because he had been pushed aside by, for the philosophers who will know this, the British idealists. And Hume's empiricism was not a fashion of the day and was not acceptable as a natural route for philosophy. And he was really fairly low down the philosophical pecking order. Kemp Smith produced these two seminal papers on human naturalism in 1905. And that, I think, was the recognition that there's more to Hume than simply an intellectual spoiler. He went on to extend this uh, very importantly in his uh, reevaluatory book on Hume published 1941, which is still the magnificent single volume that covers pretty well all uh, areas of Hume's philosophy. Two further anniversaries allowed the university to make some amends. 
One was in 1961, when, if you're quick on your feet calculating, was the 250th anniversary of Hume's birth. And the university celebrated that, quite rightly. It published, a amongst other things, a small pamphlet with uh, four intellectual articles, uh, two of them by names very well known to the philosophers here, well, three of them actually. Uh, George Davy wrote one, Paul Ardell wrote another, and Donald Winch wrote another. The third was by a historian talking about Hume's historical writings. At the same time, pretty well, elsewhere in Edinburgh, uh, that, that great figure, Hugh McDermott, published a lecture on Hume that um, is still quite a piece. But it, it's typical McDermott. He hails Hume as Scotland's greatest son. But it soon becomes pretty clear because he thinks this is so because he can adapt Hume and Hume's thinking to what he thought were his ends, uh, political and otherwise. If basically, he thought Hume supported his views, which, of course, were very, very anti-religion. Uh, In the same small edition of essays, the then principal, hugely distinguished man, Sir Edward Appleton, uh, gave uh, a, an introductory talk to a conference, I assume, uh, that was somewhat more prosaic in his praise of Hume than either McDermott or the precise, keen analysis of the philosophers I'd mentioned. But he finishes the... Oh, sorry, he opens the, the tribute to Hume in this way. On the eastern slopes of Calton Hill, just half a mile from this old college, there is a simple Roman tomb marking the grave where lie the remains of David Hume. By his own direction, the inscription on the tomb gives merely his name, the years of his birth and death, and then underneath the words, leaving it to posterity to add the rest. Tonight, we represent that posterity, and this is my little footnote to it, because he was a great and distinguished man of letters in our culture. Now, Hume ran into all these problems. Folks lionizing him in Paris, recognizing his talent in London as well, and Kant, of course, paying uh, an ultimately great tribute. Here, he was Hume the skeptic. And that reputation, actually, he fueled um, he didn't hold back. He gave plenty of justification for it. In that sense, I think uh, he, he, there was something wickedly intellectual about the provocations. Uh, initially, in Treatise on Human Nature, I think they were simply an attempt to grapple with fundamental issues that were so fundamental that they will raise questions about the very assumptions on which pretty well all of us base our lives. But he provoked the way he wrote. He had a wicked pen. He wrote, for example, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. Now, you can imagine how that was taken in a wide... Imagine Daily Express putting a headline on that. Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. It is not contrary to reason, he went on, to prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my finger. Now, again, that's provocative stuff. Very provocative. Not just reason did he ever go out, but of course Christianity. 
Regularly in his essays, he discussed religion under the title superstition. No holds there. The Christian religion, he wrote in the inquiries, not only was at first attended with miracles, this is his famous essay on miracles, Christian religion not only was attended with miracles, he said, but even at this day cannot be believed by any reasonable person without one. Well, that's ambiguous and it's ironical. And of course, some thought, oh good, he finally does believe there are miracles and we the believers have experienced it. Well, there's another interpretation. You need a miracle to believe in that lot. And he provoked, by the way, he wrote. He provoked in his comments on theology, which he referred to this latter science admits no terms of composition, but bends, bends every branch of knowledge to its own purpose without much regard to the phenomena of nature or the unbiased sentiments of the mind. In other words, they're all biased. They don't pay attention to fact. Unless those of us in the philosophical trade feel comforted, he had a go at us as well. Generally speaking, he said, the errors in religion are dangerous. Those in philosophy, merely ridiculous. So the best we can be uh, is avoiding being ridiculous. Many more examples. His comment on the errors in religion being the dangerous. I suppose nowadays we'd say, generally speaking, the errors in economics are dangerous. Those in philosophy, merely ridiculous. Many more examples could be quoted of Hume using language to needle. And sometimes he got distinctly edgy, as they say these days. Never used that word before, but I'm using it now. Sometimes he got distinctly edgy. For example, in his uh, discussion of various moral principles we have, he was discussing animals and the fact they have no such scruples, by and large, about incest that we do. He might even say in the words of the old popular song, birds do it, bees do it, even monkeys in the trees do it. What about us? Now, that again is provocative. You can imagine how that would be distorted in a red-top headline. But of course, he wasn't recommending that we follow the monkeys. He was using uh, his own example to raise questions. Well, tell me, why is it that we have moral taboos about this? Why is it this and other moral distinctions are drawn in the way they are? His skeptical question was always meant as a provocation. If you think this isn't fair, tell me what the right answer is, is basically the approach he used. Not recommending a change in perception on incest, nor a change in valuation, but he's drawing the reader's attention to the perceptions we have and the basis for them, the values we espouse and the basis for them, the laws that we pass based on those values and the basis for them. He was all in all thought to be a dangerous man, and you can see why. He didn't hold back. He provoked, he stimulated, and he used language in that way. But if he were called uh, to bar as someone who was trying to destroy morality or trivialize it, consider what he does say. Those who have denied the reality of moral distinctions may be ranked among the disingenuous disputants. He never, never denied the reality of moral distinctions, 
as he says, and someone who does maybe is that charlatan uh, that I was speaking about earlier. His skepticism was not about the importance of morality because morality and moral distinctions are fundamentally important. Morality, he writes, is a subject that interests us above all others. And he thought the way to approach that was to create what he calls a science of man. I want to give you two examples of just uh, to keep in mind during my remarks that you can test what I say and see how they apply to these. Morality, moral distinctions are there. They are real. I will not deny the reality of him, he writes. Think of uh, the case, I don't know how many of you know the Bergman film, The Seventh Seal, which is a lovely, idyllic, and at times somber film about the process of a medieval night uh, through a civilization of the time. One of the scenes that night is watching a young couple who are sitting resting under a tree with their baby. And the baby is chortling and gurgling and obviously in good form. And the parents take great delight in that. Now, I mean, I'd want to say anyone who didn't share that delight uh, and share the... Uh, uh, very positive response to such a human experience and regarded as of high value, we would find very odd indeed. And I think Hume pins a lot on that, that we do have an initial reaction in certain contexts, a capacity to respond in that way. Uh, he doesn't say is what makes you human, but certainly I think it's almost part of his account. On the other side from that, that's an expression of delight and value that we attach to a particular experience. The horrendous story from Beijing uh, this last two days about a, a baby who lay in the road long enough to be run over twice, a two-year-old, and people just walked by. It's all caught on security cameras. And the Chinese people are rightly horrified. What have we become, they are saying, that this could happen? Now, again, if you don't share that natural, natural response... Uh, there is something odd or something amiss. And nothing Hume writes or says wants to detract from the difference between these two types of response. Keep that in mind and test some of the things I say against what it means about how we react to those events. What Hume was skeptical about was not our capacity to draw moral distinctions and the importance of these distinctions, what he was so sceptical about were the theories that people used to justify drawing those distinctions. The various theories have been propagated uh, last century in Marxism, Freudianism. They will explain for you. Darwinism will explain for you. Hume would, I think, have been equally sceptical about those theories as he was about the theories of his own age. A healthy civil society... A healthy civil society examines such theories because if they are mistaken in basis, they will distort what we choose eventually to value and what we enshrine in law. So there are certain key assumptions in his own time, as well as in our time, that he examined skeptically, as I say, not to undermine the distinction between the Bergman parents and the Beijing experience, but rather to say, well, any theory that purports to tell you that it's not quite like it is, 
um, will not do. And that takes us to what must be mentioned in a Gifford lecture, Hume on religion. I was basically told not to spend the whole hour on human religions. That's why I'm talking about human civil society. But you can't avoid noting that one of the theories, if you like, one of the justifications or sources of moral distinction that Hume was most skeptical about was religion. And religion as practiced in the society in which he lived. Now, this critique of religion, which has actually produced what I think is still the greatest work of philosophy of religion, Hume's Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, a beautiful piece of work, oh, elegantly written. There's not actually a clear conclusion at the end, however, at least not on the surface of the book. And so people have arguments. And I, even in the House, House of Lords, I've been bold enough to quote David Hume. And uh, one or two quoted back at me, but Hume was an atheist. I said, well, actually, for Hume, the most important question was not, is Hugh Blair an atheist? But is Hugh Blair a congenial man with sentiments that I can share, with whom I can have conversations, uh, with whom I can discuss things? Hume didn't divide the world into atheists and non-atheists. And in fact, there's the famous story of his time in France when he, uh, and this is recorded by Diderot, I mean, what a what a, an accolade to be recorded by Diderot. Uh, if, if we get recorded by the obituary columns of the Scotsman, we think we're doing well. But Diderot recorded this story about David Hume. I don't know, wrote Diderot, for what purpose the English philosopher, sorry about that, but that's what Diderot wrote, for what purpose the English philosopher took it into his head to remark to the baron that he did not believe in atheists. This is Hume that he had never seen any. The baron said to him, count how many we are. Around the table he went, uh, we are 18. The baron added, it isn't too bad a showing to be able to point out to you 15 at once, and the other three haven't made up their minds. But this, this was Hume saying, well, show me an atheist. I, I don't think I've ever seen one. Maybe he had his tongue in his cheek. But what he was saying, I believe, was essentially... It's not such a big deal, atheist or no atheist. That is not the most important question for Hume. I think it's an important question, I accept that. But um, that's not for Hume. He referred to these uh, 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 dining companions, the philosophes, as the sheikhs in Rue Royale. There's an irony in that too, isn't there? But there is something of his sense of humor at play there, and Dido recorded it, presumably, quite faithfully. But his most powerful skepticism attached itself not initially to the belief that there is a God, but to the assumption that you had to believe that if you were to be able to draw moral distinctions clearly and seriously. That's what he's saying. Not the big issue is, is there a God? But I reject those who say I have to believe there is if I'm able to draw moral distinctions. Um, he might have said, reasonably, some of my best friends are clergymen, because they were. The difference he had with certain forms of religion was it was not a source of moral distinctions to which you had to attach yourself to be or to think morally, nor was it uh, a condition of moral insight 
to be a religious person. So that was target number one of his skepticism. Not, I'm skeptical about whether there's a God. That's not the big question. The big question is, uh, is that relevant to whether we draw moral distinctions sensibly or not? Target one, religion. Target two, reason. I've already given you some of the quotations for this. Reason alone is not the source of moral distinctions. This he argued very strongly. As I've quoted, it is not contrary to reason to prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my finger. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Hitler created the gas chambers. Stalin destroyed the kulaks. None of these are open to criticism simply because it was a, a, a folly of logic or a failure of rationality. It's not, well, think of Billy Bunter's great cry that regularly went up. I say, you chaps, let's be reasonable. Saying that to Hitler, Stalin, and Nero cuts no ice. That's not the problem. It's not they're being unreasonable. And Hume, I just crystallized the argument in this example. Hume is arguing that it's not irrational. It's not irrationality or lack of reason. We don't have to attend to our Euler's diagrams or the Venn diagrams or uh, the Socratic uh, arguments that that is not what will teach us what the difference between good and bad is. Religion, no. Reason, no. You can see he's piling up enemies. There were some other key alternatives at the time. The notion that there's an inner source of some uh, feeling or intuition. And if we just manage to switch on to that, or as some of my American friends say these days, to get in touch with your inner self, if you just get that right, then you'll know what all the appropriate moral distinctions are. Hume rejected this completely. He put forward alternative proposals, and I come to those shortly. But the passions, which I suppose is partly what we mean by feelings these days, or the inner sense uh, that some uh, appealed to, these uh, were not the source that could give you the clarity about good and bad, evil and uh, the opposite, uh, according to Hume. The thing about our feelings, and this is very important, is that they tend to be undigested unless we educate them or school them or discipline them. Our feelings, as he pointed out about things, are always stronger the nearer we are to the example. So, for example, we have stronger positive feelings about our own families, about those who live near us, perhaps those who live in our own country. These are always stronger, just naturally. This is part of human science of man in embryo form. And therefore, feelings alone will not make these distinctions that tell us that perhaps some valuations of good and bad are equally important at arm's length, at distance and space and time. You reacted to the story about Beijing very quickly, and that is as distant as you get. Uh, certainly, if that had happened to your own child or a neighbor's child, your feelings would have been uh, quite dramatic. But as a moral judgment, as a moral response, the distance has to be taken out of the picture. So primary feelings alone won't do it. And Hume looked to what might moderate 
such an inevitable bias in the subjectivity of feelings. Key element to which I'll come very shortly was his doctrine of sympathy, which of course Adam Smith developed dramatically in his own philosophical thinking. But before I come to that, religion rejected as a source of moral distinction, reason rejected, and simply an undigested raw feeling if only we get it right, we will know. Won't do according to Hume. I want to go on a little detour and then come back to the main theme. The little detour is this. There were alternative sets of assumptions in his time. And I, I must mention these. I hope they won't be too uh, boring for some of you. But I must mention these because they are very important for understanding Hume. What he was looking for was a basis for civil society, a basis for sharing values and distinctions, both in our responses to situations and indeed eventually in the laws we make. One of the most uh, important of these that was being explored during his lifetime was given a definitive statement in Rousseau's social contract, which begins with, I think I'm paraphrasing rather than quoting, the opening line, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. Hobbes gave an alternative version. The, the, the theory which Rousseau gave was that there was a contract between all members of civil society. And that contract was the way in which you found both the justification of the moral distinctions that you draw and certainly of those that you enshrine in law. This contract, however, has its problems. Hobbes gave another version. His was uh, much more somber, much more serious. The contract there was not between members of society, but between members of society individually and the ruler. It was like Orwell's 1984, where everyone had a relationship to Big Brother, and nobody had an adequate relationship to their family or to their neighbors an alternative contractual theory. But Rousseau's was the, the big one that was live at the time. Hume didn't think that surmising that there had been a state of nature in which such a theory was forged and out of which civilized society came uh, was a plausible story. He thought such, for a start, he thought such a state of nature was a fiction a fantasy of some kind. But more importantly, he asked two very clear questions. When this contract was signed, when was that promise made? When were these agreements formulated? And more penetratingly, how was it possible in a state of nature in which there was no such thing as a bond or a trust, no conventions of speech and meaning, how is it possible that such a contract could have come to being? And uh, Hume's argument basically is, whatever the story is, that is not one that is a runner. Because in a state of nature, you're dealing with total anarchy. There are no, no, tr no forms of trust between people, according to the mythical state of nature posited. And so we can go into this later if you want, but I, I, I simply instance that this Further example of how moral distinctions set in place in civil society can be justified 
were rejected by Hume. No contracts. When did it happen? No. 5,000 BC? 20,000 BC? I, that wasn't, he thought, a sensible question because he didn't think it could happen. And if you've ever been in the middle of a very anarchic situation, you know there is no such thing as rational discussion, agreement, trust, promise, convention. So Hume's conclusions about contract theory, which ruled the roost, and indeed uh, was, was part of the basis of the French Revolution, um, the assumptions of the contractarians had not sufficiently paid attention to the nature of human beings. The nature of human beings is such that if you posit a state of nature, there are no relationships. Equally, Hume didn't think, but I, I, I shan't go into this in, on grounds of time, Hume didn't think that there was a law in nature out there that if we could only just see it sufficiently clearly, uh, that that would settle the question of how and where and why we draw the moral distinctions we do. Usually, those who appeal to the notion of a law of nature have another theory sitting alongside. It may be the rational one, it may be the religious one, for example, but Hume didn't see uh, a law of nature to which we should, uh, in which we could discern real moral distinctions. So our love, our admiration, our distaste for others even, is specific to individuals. There is no such thing as a general form of altruism. No such thing as a general form of love of mankind. He thought that naturally, I suppose one is tempted to say we are selfish, but perhaps better, we are self-centered. We see what happens to those closest or nearest and dearest in much more dramatic terms. We uh, make distinctions and value about those far more quickly than about what lies at a distance. And that is no basis for a civil society which might be as large as the one we inhabit today. So this summary of this section of the lecture that I've been galloping through, but I'm trying to illustrate his position rather than justify it. There are problems. He rejected the view that religious belief performed the basis of morality. He rejected the view that correct moral judgment was a, based on appeals to reason. He rejected the view that the basis of society was a prior social contract. And he rejected the view that appeal to a, a raw feeling or intuition, getting in touch with your inner self, as we call it today, is the right way to go ahead. These are the things he didn't accept. These are the forms that his skepticism took. Now, I've been asked, what positively did Hume say? If he's rejected all that, are we without hope? And there are some who have seen Hume as a relativist, as someone who destroyed morality, destroyed moral distinctions, because, of course, all these bases he has stripped away in his arguments. Well, in this final section of the lecture, it's a good word, isn't it, final? In this final section of the lecture, uh, I want to speculate a bit. I think you have to, because Hume did not produce a fully formed alternative philosophy that encompassed 
the degree uh, of analysis and the quality of analysis uh, that you find in his skepticism. But there's enough in Hume, there's enough in Hume, I believe, to construct a possible account. And that's the best I can do. It's in the famous words of Stan Kenton, distorting one of Glenn Miller's tunes, a design on Glenn Miller. It's a design on David Hume. But it's something inspired by Hume. Well, it's all very well, we say to Hume then, to ask your awkward questions, just as doubtless you shout at John Humphreys or some of his uh, uh, poor interviewees uh, uh, in the morning on the Today program. All very well to ask the awkward questions. What's your proposal? What have you got to say? Where do we look for, for the basis of civil society, the values, the distinctions essential to it? Some points in Hume are very clear, and I'm not speculating here. These are very important, very clear, and quite fundamental. First, as all we all know, he's an empiricist. He tried to, and wanted, had the ambition to create a science of man. Facts. What we know about human beings had to be the basis of any account of the values that we hold. Secondly, this is less clear, but I can produce evidence for it without difficulty. Hume was a pragmatist. When he sided on this side or on that, um, he was very pragmatic about it. I'll give you one clear example. He was uh, quizzed about his attachment to the American revolutionaries. Remember, the American Revolution started formally the year he died. So this was pre-revolution. But he and a number of other intellectuals in this city supported the Americans. They supported their call for republicanism. They supported no taxation without representation. And as long as they felt they were simply the subjects of kings, then there would be no representation. So republicanism was in the air. And clearly it went well up into the air at the time of the French Revolution later on. He was asked, come on Hume, we've all been reading your histories, magnificent works, we've all been reading those. Uh, why don't you more clearly attack the idea of monarchy? And he had a very pragmatic answer. By and large, he said, in this country, and that's what we now call the United Kingdom, We've dealt, we've dealt with the excesses of monarchy, the act of settlement in the 17th century, and all that followed from that, the fact that we allowed the monarchy to return after having had a look at the alternative with Oliver Cromwell, that was a deliberate, pragmatic decision. We stripped them of their absolute powers, we stripped them of all that makes them potential tyrants, and it works. After I gave the same reply to someone in this university many years ago. And I said, well, what's the alternative? Um, that we elect um, uh, Ronald Reagan? Uh, that we elect uh, George W. as our head of state? Maybe we're doing quite well with what we've got. And we have other ways of making political decisions. But Hume was a pragmatist. And he said, we've, we've, we've found out how to make monarchy work. So what's all the fuss about? Very interesting view, but he was a pragmatist, I stress that. He also, and this has been less noticed, uh, though I, I have to say my good friend Nicholas Philipson has picked this up in his writings, um, Hume uh, had 
If he gives a health warning about language and the use of language. He writes, I do not find that in English or any other tongue the boundaries are exactly fixed between virtues and talents, vices and defects, or that the precise definition can be given of the one as a contradistinction from the other. Language is a bit fluid, basically. Now, this wasn't a, therefore you can say what you like because it doesn't matter. Rather, it was a call to greater precision in language. And that, for Hume, is very important. Two types of question Hume asked about society. One, and he gave a variety of answers. I'm going to draw a distinction now that he didn't draw. But I'll explain why in a moment. There is a fundamental question. How did civil society evolve? I mean, if it wasn't a, a contract back there amongst the cavemen, how did it evolve? That's an empirical question. And Hume did occasionally seem to hint at what he thought some of the answers were. But there's a very different question. And this is one that, especially in the 20th centuries, uh, philosophers have attached greater importance to. Not an empirical question about, in this case, how did civil society evolve, but a, a conceptual question. A question of what are the conditions under which civil society exists, and equally importantly for lawmakers and, and folks making public policy, what are the conditions under which we can continue to have civil society? If things disappear from civil society, Will it collapse? What are the conditions? Not what are the origins? And of course, I just remind you of this. We've, had a, we've got a prime minister who says society is broken. Now, what does that mean? Under what conditions can we expect civil society to continue? A fundamental question for David Hume. I will focus on that second question rather than the question about and what are the origins? Because that's an empirical question that I'm not equipped to answer, to be quite blunt. His answers to the question about the conditions, and think of it this way to help clarify your thinking. What, if it were lost from the society in which we live, would lead to the collapse of that society? What are the conditions necessary for it to continue? There are many. Hume stated some of them. And these are the ones I want to look at. First, would you believe? No, you wouldn't, so I won't say it immediately. I quote, The first and original principle of human society, he writes, is the appetite betwixt the sexes and their outcome, which of course is children. That is the first, he referred to it as the original principle, I'm referring to it as what he implied was a condition of civil society. Following from that, he said, in the same section of the uh, treatise, he referred to the custom and habit operating on the tender minds of children, the custom and habit operating on the tender minds of children, which makes them sensible of the advantage which may, they may reap from society as well as fashioning them by degrees for that society. He said it's, it's the customs, it's the habits of that early relationship of children to what lies round about them. 
operating on their tender minds, which makes them sensible of the advantage of having a civil society. Not obvious in the case of a two-year-old, but if you're lucky, they grow up a bit and they are more sensible of the advantages. Now, what I didn't think you would believe if I just said it outright, of course, is this is the role of the family. It's the origin you refer to basically as, as, as copulation and procreation, and then the children that come from that, that bind you more closely uh, together. Not the whole answer, but that's one that he offers. Um, quite striking for those of modern turn of mind, uh, you can accept this or not, but this is in Hume, and I'm putting it to you that it's one of the conditions he thought necessary for the continuation, at least, of the civil society in which he lived, the role of the family, as we call it today. But he also writes of what he calls a convention or agreement between us. He said there is such a convention or an agreement, and uh, it's not the outcome of, the, of a promise made pre-society, but it's rather, as he puts it, the discovery of a common interest. And he gives a very, very simple example. That is, of, uh, if you put two people in a rowing boat and you give them oars, they'll eventually work out very, in fact, very quickly that unless they pull in the same direction, nothing will happen. Very simple, very straightforward. Said, that actually is an embryo, one of the conditions of having a civil society. So maybe the old Eaton boating song, Row, Row Together. I'm sorry, I won't go there. But, but you, you see the point. This is um, practically what happens. And he regards that as very important. This, uh, however, he takes far beyond that. And he says that uh, this convention that we all learn, that there is an interest greater than me splashing my oar this way and you splashing yours that way, this is also the basis on which language develops, or more sophisticatedly, is the basis for making gold the standard of currency. I mean, what is there in this bar of metal? It's not very valuable or useful, but yet, by convention, it was made the basis for what actually holds most of our society together, which is an understanding of economic relationships and a capacity to trade. Very, very fundamental for humor to this convention or agreement uh, comes language and comes, uh, for example, the capacity to use money. If that is lost, that was the panic in the first days of the collapse of the banks. If the banks stop paying, society really does disintegrate. There's practically nothing that we regard as normal that you can do. And Hume says, it's a matter of convention. Very important convention. So, the family and convention in its various forms, and there are plenty more. And the third one was education. Now, Hume doesn't say a lot about education, and he says mixed things. Uh, but he does believe that it's not simply the very small child learning from the parents in a family situation, but more broadly, educating the emotions and the passions, as he called them. Education, however, is important, but it's not infallible. And he did accept 
that education can be used to cement attitudes that basically you might well want to reject. And if you've ever seen any of the uh, uh, 1940s war films about education in Germany, you will know exactly what he means. So education wasn't an unalloyed good, but it was a good that could help uh, instantiate in human beings, help make sure that they uh, form the common habits that are necessary for the reasoning and the sharing of values. So there are three things. Family, convention and custom, and education. And these are all supporting roles. The final point is that the point of these activities is to give us a clear account of, for example, the rules of property so that we know when it's legitimate to own something, when it's legitimate to take something, when it's legitimate and appropriate to return something, the rules of property. And secondly, the rules that govern the application of justice in our society. All of these early support systems are essential if we are to develop and adhere to an understanding of what a just society is. And I just want you to test that. Um, and this is your exercise to take home with you, if you like. I just want to test that. All of these apply to our continued acceptance of uh, the appropriateness of our response to the Bergman film scene. All of these are appropriate to our acceptance of that as a matter of delight and something we value, that experience. All of these are appropriate to our distress as we hear the story in a distant city, in a distant culture, in a distant society of this two-year-old run over twice by a bus as 18 at least people walked past, unwilling, unable, unnoticing uh, in help. Now, the contemporary case I've mentioned already, our Prime Minister tells us we have a broken society. He tells us that because of the riots that took place in London and other cities and famously didn't take place in Scotland. Has he ever been to an old firm game, I wonder? But um, the, the, these riots uh, took place and they were hugely disruptive. We returned to London from overseas just as they were taking place. And the impact they had on people was manifest. Now, whether you use the expression of broken society, certainly they raised questions about the nature of civil society. And they raised questions about the education. They raised questions about the conventions and customs. And they raised questions about the early life. But they also raised questions, because these were the easy ones to push up front. They also raised questions about the justice of our, of our fiscal and financial organization and uh, role in this society. Because, of course, as people have noticed, the gap between the highest paid and the lowest paid has dramatically increased. There is a question of justice here. There is certainly questions of property. Uh, is it okay? Uh, as, one, uh, as one charged person said, well, it just seemed a good idea at the time. You know, the shop window was stove in, and I thought, no, I could fancy one of those and walked away with it. Now, 
Hume's point, and I'm not suggesting he would espouse any one of these explanations, but he is raising the fundamental question. And that is, if these things that he saw as important in his time don't continue in place, what are the alternatives? If you change the concept of family, if you change the concept of education so that there is no attempt to create custom and habit, and we've done that quite a bit, if you drop the sense in which uh, our definitions of what is just and fair uh, are clear, and if you no longer have a clear definition of the right of X to own Y, then you are at the stage of a society beginning to disintegrate. And if that's so, what can you put in their place or do you have to return those things? And I think the best way to finish a lecture on David Hume is with a question. So I will leave you with that question. Thank you very much. Sir, uh, thank you very much for the speech. Uh, I'm a postgraduate student in Edinburgh University. I'm from China. And uh, you mentioned twice about the Beijing's issue, that uh, little goal. Uh, I never thought this issue will spread so fast, and I haven't studied it in detail. But it shocked me. And uh, I wanted to ask that, you know, China is becoming a kind of superpower, but our moral principle is decrying. And uh, this issue happened, and lots of people passed by, but never rescue or give a hand to that goal. Finally, someone did. Um, do, you have any, do you think, is there any relationship between the economic development and the principle, the moral principle development? Although you might become a rich person, but you not be a moral person. And uh, what's the solution to the China's the current situation uh, to resolve this big problem? Uh, did that make sense? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. It's a very difficult question or set of questions to answer. But I, I assure you immediately of one thing. David Hume uh, would have felt the same distress at the story but it's the same distress as most of your fellow countrymen felt when the story was publicized. And there are many people in China who have had that instant reaction, which I suppose is not surprising if Hume is right, and it is part of the nature of human beings that we have the capacity to have such instant reactive feelings to such dreadful, or alternatively, such delightful. So... In a sense, it exemplifies both sides of it. It exemplifies what uh, Hume had written, that this is a shared human response. It is part of the science of human nature, if you like. Not that expression I especially like, but he was keen on it. Um, m many uh, of your countrymen, I've seen extracts from the Chinese press uh, translated, uh, have suggested, oh, it's just like the West now, and they don't care because it's a matter of uh, expanding your own wealth and expanding your own self-gratification, and it's just too much trouble to help. But this, again, is a reaction of many of your own fellow countrymen. Whether that's the whole... I mean, I, I do actually know some rich philanthropists, not enough, 
But I, I mean, we have come across one or two, and I'm sure the principal pursues them uh, week in, week out uh, in the interests of the university. Uh, there are such things, there are such people, there are such human beings. Uh, and um, so I don't think inevitably <laughs> possessions uh, uh, weigh against the possibility of decency of response. But on the other hand, um, what I referred to in passing in terms of justice, the sort of gap between rewards uh, perhaps unearned uh, and uh, those who work perhaps most menially and occasionally hardest physically uh, is too great that, that our society may not be able to sustain that, may not. And there will be um, problems in the streets if that turns out to be the case. So I think uh, Hume has issued a warning and it has to do partly with property. Are the rules of property such that infinite expansion um, is okay, uh, especially if you don't pay taxes? So there are complex questions here, but I think Hume is, is raising them. So thank you for yours. Castamelia, Professor mm. of Nursing Studies, hello. hello. That was very <laughs> enjoyable. Um, partly connected with shouting at the radio to John Humphreys. My profession at the moment is, is uh, getting some public... Uh, flack, to put it mildly, for um, seem not to care. And part of the blame, which is made in one quick leap from one Camilla Cavendish from spending 50% of their training time in this very university, in my case, or in universities, equals that they no longer care. Uh, I know the two-minute interview on the Today programme makes a quick leap to that. But it is quite difficult to know how to respond to students coming out and starting to try to join a profession which is getting such, such a noise. And I just wondered what you or Hume through you might have to say. <laughs> I don't think you'll get anything out of Hume, and you might have difficulty getting anything out of me. Uh, but but I, I think there is one issue I will comment on, uh, and that is... The risk is in, in a society in which, as he said, justice is an artificial virtue and pursuit of, of what is right um, partly relies on conventions, conventions creep. And the conventions in your profession crept towards graduate profession. You know, all sorts of positive reasons for that. But that's not the way it should happen. There should be a sitting down and saying, well, actually, what, what are the needs that we have to meet? In, uh, be they in hospitals or in home care or in what we used to call district nurses. What are those needs and how best do we prepare people and find people to carry them out? And that's rather different from a professional view about a specific qualification being the only basis for providing that kind of care. Uh, as I say, I mean, I'm being very careful here because I know who you are very well. Um, I'm being very careful here, but, but it, it, it's... The convention has crept. The right question is one that we now have to ask. And I'm very concerned about the needs of people who will need care at home, not necessarily from nurses. And I don't think we're doing enough uh, to prepare a community who, who want to do this uh, and who need certain skills to do it. You said you, you had to restrain yourself not to talk about human religion. Uh, but let me ask you to lift, lift that restraint for a moment, if you would. Um, because it seems to me, actually, in what you had to say, there is a, an interesting argument, one might think, a Humean argument, if I can put it that way, for religion. You've emphasized family, convention, education, and so on. And the first questioner raised the matter of China. 
One thing that's characteristic of the religions of China is ancestor veneration. And, of course, Hume, uh, along with Hume as a sort of founding figure of modern conservative thought, is Burke, who talks about society as you know, the contract between the long dead and those as yet unborn. And it is a feature of religion, if you think of, say, the religion of Israel, sacred history of the people of Israel and so on, within <coughs> Christianity, the communion of saints and such like, within Chinese religion, ancestor veneration and so on. So you might think that the kind of piety that's associated with religion, particularly in relation to past, long dead, mm-hmm. and future unborn, is a sort of supplement or extension of Hume's doctrine, as it were, of sympathy and family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does, I, I just perhaps you'd like to reflect for a moment on whether there isn't, as it were, a turning against Hume mm-hmm. <laughs> using Hume's own resources. Well, I mean, I, that, that's actually a very clever question, which is what I expect from John Haldane. But there are two elements to it uh, that I'd pick out. One is, it would be very interesting to, to actually work out what such an extension amounted to and what additional beliefs you had to have to make sense of them. Because clearly, um, it, does it require a belief in immortality, not one that Hume shared, uh, or, or not necessarily? Uh, and how do you transfer from not accepting that folks are immortal, to the needs of the very old whose mortality is beginning to fray at the edges. Uh, So I I think there is a question there that you could work out. And I'm sure the notion of sympathy um, should extend beyond um, those who are like us. Because, of course, when we are 40, we think the world will never change. It will always be like this. When it's 50, you know, you begin to wonder a bit. When you're my age, uh, you suddenly realize all the benefits and all the good things about old people. Uh, and, you, and your sympathies, mo- and your, sorry, your, your initial feelings move a bit. Well, actually, you shouldn't have to, uh, according to Hume, if you'd been well-educated, subject to the right custom, the right convention, uh, if, if, if uh, you had learned how to extend sympathy uh, in terms of length of life at both ends, because actually sometimes they are mewling, squalling brats, these little ones. Um, you, you, you've got to learn that, and Hume, uh, Hume's doctrines or, or, or teachings are, are very much in line with that. In terms of whether or not there's a more pragmatic value in religion, which I think is the other where you started, um, well, some of his best friends were clergymen. He found the moderates in the Church of Scotland, civilized people who helped him refine in conversation, perhaps also over wine, but in conversation refine his language, his thinking, his perceptions, his ideas. And famously, he, when he was preparing this, what I recall the best ever work in philosophy of religion in my view, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, he tested some of his arguments on this and other religious matters out on Bishop Butler, whom he so respected that uh, he, he, he wanted this man's opinion. And, of course, this man's opinion comes with a, a platform, I wouldn't use the word baggage, but a platform of religious belief that Hume critically attacked in, in dialogues concerning natural religion. So what he wanted was the capacity to share what is of value. And I don't think any sane person would say um, uh, all religion uh, promotes extremity and evil. It doesn't. And some forms of religion have preserved values, have preserved ways of experiencing things, ways of uh, 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 evaluating things uh, that we would lose at our peril. 
And that's the point of the question I was asking at the end. We were debating school worship in the House of Lords yesterday. Uh, and if that is pushed out and what it symbolizes is pushed out, is there anything that can take up the slack there? And that, I think, is the question Hume forces on us if we want to maintain uh, a civil society. Could I ask whether Hume's sympathy had any limits? He is often said to uh, be a champion of commercial society, and yet the commercial society of his time was basically uh, established on the, sla on the slave trade. Mm. Uh, it, he may well have, as you said, sympathized with the American revolutionaries, but I wonder what his position was, if he had a position, with regard to uh, social inequality and uh, especially slavery. Well, uh, interestingly, uh, a former chaplain of this university, Ian White, who has written, uh, since he retired, uh, a thesis on uh, that period and slavery particularly, uh, regularly pressed this question on me as a way of saying, well, don't get too cosy with Hume. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't. And there isn't that I've found uh, a place where he picks out um, slavery as the abomination that we now think it is. Uh, that's just a fact. He was a man of his times. And so these were the limits to Hume's sympathy. And I think this is part of the point I want to make about Hume. We're all subject to those limits. I'm not excusing Hume. We're all subject to those limits, which means that his moderate skepticism is actually a better starting point for social discussion and social cohesion and social coherence than, well, I've got it worked out. These are the absolutes, as they had in South Africa on apartheid. Um, it was according to the law. You know, what was wrong with it? And many people simply went with it. And in the same way, um, Hume and most of his contemporaries, until Wilberforce and others, uh, partly with religious uh, stimulus, uh, went against that. Now, what, what bits of uh, would opulence would Hume draw the line at? I, I, to be honest, I can't. I, I, I mean, I was speculating on a picture that comes out of Hume that I think is a workable grid to use today. But I, I, he, was now, he, was, he was a very comfortably well-off man because his histories uh, were immensely uh, uh, bestsellers of the time. And so he eventually, from poverty because he couldn't afford to live in Scotland, he went to France. He did become um, comfortably off, but uh, I, he, didn't, he didn't become one of the great rich people of this country, and I'm not sure he ever had the motive to do so. Just lastly, since you are from Aberdeen, um, I hope that the picture of the, uh, the uh, portrait of Beattie, James Beattie, is still on show in the university. Because this was Beatty at his greatest. He was lionized by London. The King, King George thought he was a great man uh, because he had refuted that terrible Hume. That's how important Hume was. And if you go and see the portrait, there's a tiny little cowering figure down in the bottom and Beatty clearly overlooking. And this is Hume, this wretched little uh, uh, character down at the bottom of the picture. It, it's worth going to. I mean, there's just an irony about it that I, uh, as Aberdonian-based, I can't help uh, uh, pointing out. So, so now it's a, a great privilege to, to propose a vote of thanks. Uh, David Hume is a great philosopher, great alumnus of the university, uh, requires...
particularly in this uh, wonderful room, a great lecture, and, and that is what we got. Um, uh, we, Stuart um, did the history very well. We had very clear analysis. Uh, we had beautifully clear language, a, a model for any lecturer. Uh, we had some very nice light touches. Uh, and we also had a, a, a very clear personal moral base uh, coming through the argument. So it was uh, really uh, exemplary and I think a privilege uh, for all of us to hear such a carefully uh, reasoned lecture. So please join me in applauding Lord Sutherland again. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.